Rebag is a luxury resale marketplace. They have a curated collection of investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry. Each piece is carefully vetted and verified by experts. You can buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Hermes, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. That's Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. Betches Media presents. If you feel depressed and if you feel anxious and you feel confused, you know what? Welcome to the club. Gaspacho police. Oh my God. What a stupid son of a bitch. He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. The Betches Sup Podcast. Sayonara, sucker. Hello, I'm Sammy Sage, and this is the Betches Sup Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. Today, I am here with Andrea Chalupa, the co-host of the podcast Gaslit Nation, one of my favorites, honestly. She is a journalist and filmmaker of the movie Mr. Jones, a dramatic thriller which tells the story of Stalin's famine in Ukraine in the 1930s. Welcome, Andrea. I am so thrilled to be speaking to you on this topic. Oh, I'm thrilled and grateful to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, you have, I I feel that so much of what I've learned on this crisis and on this particular geopolitical dynamic has been from you and Sarah on Gaslit Nation. So let's just dive right in. Um, I know this is obviously Ukraine is very important to you. Can you tell us a little bit about why and what your experience is that makes, you know, this such a unique moment for you to be experiencing? Yeah, no, absolutely. So both my mother and father, their families are from Ukraine. My mother's family is from Donbass, which is a region of eastern Ukraine that's been under Russian invasion since 2014. So Putin's war, hot war, started with Crimea and then immediately Donbass. And then my father's side is from the west, the Lviv area, where you see all the refugees, everybody running to now. Um, So I grew up a proud Ukrainian-American. I I felt very close to my heritage. I had um, a grandfather who helped raise me. He was the world to me. Uh, He lived through Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. I made my film, Mr. Jones, in tribute to him and to name and shame the corruption in Western media and Western businesses that helped or, or allowed the Kremlin to get away with Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. Stalin committed several genocides. What he did against Ukrainians is considered arguably his worst genocide, it was a famine that was engineered deliberately because there, there weren't nuclear weapons at the time. So how do you kill as many people as possible uh, through a man-made famine? He took away their grain, sold it abroad to rapidly raise money to modernize his empire. He sealed off the borders of Ukraine. Journalists couldn't get in. Refugees who were starving couldn't get out. Um, around, I think, something like um, 5 million people total, including the outside of Ukraine, were starved, with the vast majority being, the vast majority of the victims were inside Ukraine. And there's even a death certificate during the height of the famine where the cause of death was simply being Ukrainian. And so my film, Mr. Jones, focuses on this real-life Welsh journalist, a young, independent, idealistic guy by the name of Gareth Jones, who risked his life and career to sneak in, to go into Ukraine, witness what was happening, and blow the lid off this thing. And he took on the celebrity journalists of his day, including 
Walter Duranti, the New York Times Moscow bureau chief who lived this hedonistic life in Moscow. And when Stalin was laying the, the groundwork for his famine, hate speech propaganda, just like Putin's doing today, justifying mass murder of Ukrainians, vilifying Ukrainians, creating a justification to murder Ukrainians. Uh, during that time, Duranti won his Pulitzer for his coverage of Stalin and conveniently left all this out. Um, so it's a true story. It's The actors in the film are extraordinary. There's James Norton, who people have probably seen on Grandchester and McMafia and Greta Gehrig's Little Women. Uh, Peter Sarsgaard plays Walter Duranti. And then the wonderful Vanessa Kirby, who played Princess Margaret on the Crown, is a is a wonderful role as this um, journalist that's sort of, you know, struggling with her own role in this this moment in history. And the film was directed by Agnieszka Holland, who is a three-time Academy Award nominee who gave the world Europa Europa, the story of a Jewish boy who hides in Hitler's youth to survive, and the original version of The Secret Garden, which is just a mystical film. It's just so beautiful. And um, Agnieszka, for her to get involved in this project and direct it, she was like my only hope because I I was just struggling for many, many years to get this film made. For Agnieszka Holland, this film is also deeply personal because her mother and father were journalists in Soviet-occupied Poland. And her father's official cause of death was suicide while under police interrogation. So that's the film, Mr. Jones. So I encourage people to see it to get more historical context of what's happening today, because it's it's so important for people to know that what Putin is doing in Ukraine is is more than just a war. It's a genocide. He has had an obsession with Ukraine for a very long time. He uses genocidal language against Ukraine. The definition of genocide includes deliberately mass killing people in a political state, in a nation. With the, with the aim of destroying that nation. That is included in the official definition of genocide, and that is what Putin is doing. Uh, he insists that Ukraine is not a nation. His propagandist, who is leading these so-called fake peace talks with Ukraine, uh, does the same. Uh, the whole <laughs> Russian propaganda machine from you know Russian state TV insists that Ukrainians deserve to die. They're subhuman. Um, and his whole little little corner in the Kremlin, like the three men that surround him that he's isolated with, they're like Michael Flynn, Alex Jones level conspiracy theories that carry these same genocidal conspiracies about Ukrainians being subhuman and deserving to die. So it's a genocide. It's really important that people understand that Putin will not stop until he just levels Ukraine, kills as many Ukrainians as possible. This is this is what he's doing before the eyes of the world. And in the lead up to this, he brought back Stalin in the years that his terror against the world has been escalating from his invasion in Georgia to the war crimes he carried out in Syria to pop, to prop up his proxy, the, the Syrian dictator Assad, um, to seizing Crimea, invading Crimea and Donbass. Donbass, especially in eastern Ukraine, is an Orwellian lace, wasteland under Russian occupation. It ranks in the world as North Korea in terms of how authoritarian it is. So that's what awaits Ukrainians if they submit to Russia's demands of surrender. And um, so Putin is now in over his skis. This is the most ambitious military campaign he's ever attempted, which just further emphasizes his very long obsession with Ukraine. And I can get into why he has this obsession with Ukraine, if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, so that was actually that was 
one of the many avenues I was thinking of going down. I yeah, let's let's start there. Why is he so obsessed with Ukraine and what are his aspirations beyond it? Yeah, well, so the, I'll start by saying there's a lot of discussion over whether Putin is insane, whether he's lost his mind, right. whether he's terminally ill, or there's and there's something playing on his health. And that's all valid speculation, obviously, given his behavior and given some weird things that have come out. Like he's increasingly unhinged, mm-hmm. um, but and he's increasingly isolated, right? So some people have pointed out that COVID brain has gotten to him. He's just so isolated, afraid of the virus that he's just he's succumbed to just the worst version of himself. But the reality is what he's been doing against Ukraine and and the escalation of his terrorism all these years are very consistent with the KGB, with the sadism of the KGB, with the genocidal policies and and terrorism carried out by Russia for many decades over the entirety of Soviet history. Um, The Soviet Union is just another word for Russian empire. So that you had all these captive states and the satellite states of the Warsaw Pact countries. And this was in the, many of these countries suffered under Russian occupation, right? Some of them had their language banned uh, and, and, you know, they, they, were ling- they, rushed, they were forced to speak Russian and teach Russian in school. They had their intelligentsia, their leading thinkers, their artists, their political leaders executed, their, their mass purges, right? So this was done in, in several of these so-called captive states under Russian occupation during the time of the Soviet Union. And as an extension of that, you had just unimaginable sadism, just unimaginable cruelty, deliberate cruelty carried out by the KGB. And Putin is a KGB agent. He has that KGB mindset. Um, he came to power um, by through um, these um, this horrific event of these Moscow apartment bombings. There's a great journalist by the name of David Satter who pieced together um, this compelling argument that Putin himself orchestrated the Moscow bombings in order to consolidate his power and to go into Chechnya, the second Russian war in Chechnya, and just massively destroy Chechnya through war crimes and level cities like Grozny to the ground. And now Chechnya is a puppet republic of Putin, and he uses Chechens as mercenaries to 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 intimidate his opposition and to and to wage war. And there's Chechen mercenaries fighting for him in Ukraine. And this this wasn't there um, uh, wasn't there an assassination attempt that was apparently being run by Chechen mercenaries. Oh, I yeah. think that was a story like yeah, a week or yeah, two ago. Was, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Z- Zelensky's like, we got your guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come get your guys. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. So it's like one of the many assassinated assassination attempts Putin has, has survived. Or, sorry, Zelensky has survived. But my point is, is that it's what we're seeing from Putin is consistent. He goes from invading Georgia to mass war crimes in Syria to seizing Crimea to turning Donbass areas into Orwellian wasteland. And now he's here. He just keeps ratcheting it up, right? And then he also um, he also wielded the power of corruption to tip the very close Brexit vote. Carol Caldwallader, an Orwell Prize winning journalist, has uncovered that. And then he, of course, wielded corruption again to tip the very close U.S. vote in 2016, helping bring his longtime Kremlin asset, Trump, to power. And there's great books on that. Of course, Sarah Kenzier, my co-host, her book, Hiding in Plain Sight, documents that. Um, Craig Unger has a great book, House of Putin, House of Trump, 
Um, and then the Mueller report itself <laughs> documents yeah. that. And so, <laughs> right. um, so, so Putin is is has is a master KGB agent, and in the KGB employs terrorism and and Russian Empire under the KGB depended on genocide. And so he wants to bring Ukraine back because there's this saying in foreign policy that Russia with Ukraine, resource rich Ukraine, culturally rich Ukraine, Russia and geographically beneficial Ukraine, Russia with Ukraine is the United States. Russia without Ukraine is Canada. <laughs> so as part right. of his big empire building, he wants to absorb the, the jewel of what, the, you know, historically Ukraine is, the, is a jewel of the Soviet empire, whether it was under the czars or the Soviet Union. And you know, the resources there are immense. And um, Kiev itself, Kiev itself is considered the Jerusalem of the Slavs. Uh, there was this powerful, at the time, medieval kingdom that would marry their royal family to other royal houses across Europe, including to the Franks. And um, so there's a lot of prestige in, in this beautiful, gorgeous capital of Kiev that might now be destroyed. There are ancient, um, there are ancient UNESCO heritage sites in Kiev today that mark this medieval kingdom that is so important to Slavic nations like Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus. And now they might be leveled to the ground because Putin, like the KGB, just simply doesn't care. There's no red line for them. They they go all the way through terror. And, and people have to understand that they pride themselves on this shamelessness. You had accused Russian spy Maria Butina, who was on um, the BBC saying that it's Ukrainians bombing Ukrainians. And right. then you have the Russian embassy Twitter account saying tweeting things that the pregnant women that were bombed deliberately in the maternity hospital by Russia that they're crisis actors that they have makeup on so people might people in democratic nations might look at this and be like that's appalling how could they be so shameless but it's because that shamelessness that ruthlessness has worked for them for so long in intimidating their opponents and um forcing their opponents to surrender and forcing concessions and th threatening any accountability. That's why they've gotten away for so long. And these Western sanctions that are too little too late are, are you know, they were, they were blocked because nobody had it in them to stand up to Putin's terrorism. And he was buying off people left and right in government, in media, in all sorts of cultural institutions, laundering his money through his army of oligarchs, who were like, like Abramovich and Deripaska, who just finally got sanctioned today. But so all of this, you know, you have you have Syrian human rights activists and a lot of um, pun uh, political analysts from the Middle East saying, "Where the hell were all these sanctions when Syrian hospitals and, and Syrian orphanages and Syrian schools were getting bombed?" So the reality is, is that Putin's thuggery. And Putin's corruption has protected him for so long. And if the West just um, was more like Zelensky, <laughs> yeah. you know, much, much sooner, then so many lives could have been saved in this entire global crisis. This genocide before the eyes of the world could have been avoided. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you are searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone on any occasion. Now it's easier to find gifts made by independent sellers for all of the people in your life, like the pickleballers, I know plenty of those, the jazz fan, the artist, the pasta lover, whatever niche interest they have, you can find an incredible gift on Etsy. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there is something for everyone. There is so much pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas specifically for my dad, but my dad loves flying, he loves airplanes, he loves aviation, and he never gets sick of a cute little gift that has a reference to that. And the inventory for that on Etsy is incredible. I hope my dad lives for 200 years because I can get him a birthday present related to aviation or planes from Etsy for every single one of them, if not hundreds and hundreds of years more. There really is that much. A gifting moment is always around the corner, but whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So can you elaborate a little bit on when you you alluded to this actually early earlier in the interview in your movie, Mr. Jones, about how saying talking about how the famine that Stalin perpetuated was sort of hidden by the elites and how they were embedded with Western structures. So can you talk a little bit about how that works now and maybe why that has that led Putin to believe that he could just get away with this land grab? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So under Putin, he's brought back Stalin as a great hero. There have been statues going up to Stalin. Textbooks have been uh, rewritten to glorify Stalin. And it worked. If, if you know, polling showed that Russians today remember Stalin as a wonderful hero, not a mass murderer that killed off um, many of their best and brightest and terrorized Russian society. And so, um, all of that is important because um, he, what happened under Stalin was uh, Stalin got away with all sorts of atrocities. The West turned a blind eye, and I always argued that if we had had Twitter and YouTube. In other social media, during the time of Stalin's genocide famine in 1933, things could have turned out a lot differently. Because what happened back then is obviously you had information controlled in the hands of the few. You couldn't get your article out there unless you went through the permission of some editor at some, uh, you know, what, to whatever outlet was available to you, a newspaper somewhere, a magazine. And that was sort of a perilous way for journalists to live, because you know, depending on those relationships with editors at various places to earn a living. And um, so therefore, the whole role of being a journalist, you were dependent on your social connections, how, how much an editor liked you, how willing they were to publish you. I mean, certainly that exists today. But, but, but in the conditions back then where you didn't have the option to say, oh, well, nobody wants my video, nobody wants my article, nobody wants my podcast, so I'm just going to go put it up myself. You, obviously, you didn't have that option back then. And so with the control of information, the tight control of information back then with, the, with all these gatekeepers controlling what would get published, what would get heard, um, you, had, you had guys like Walter Durante 
who was um, living the high life in Moscow and having all these extreme parties, um, he he was considered the voice of Moscow. His nickname was Our Man in Moscow. He would go to trips to New York City and get celebrated by the Algonquin Round Table and all the illuminaries there, uh, being you know hanging on his every word about his stories about this this exotic far-flung posts in Moscow and what Stalin was like and what the Soviet Union was like. And Duranty, for being this big celebrity mouthpiece of the Kremlin that was vetted by the world, um, he was rewarded for it by the Soviets like, with um, interviews with Stalin, with you know getting to live an extraordinarily luxurious, comfortable life in Moscow. And, um, and, and he was the final word on these issues. So when, my, so when young Gareth Jones comes along, this idealistic, ambitious guy, and has this big story, he doesn't break it in a newspaper. He goes directly to a press conference. And that's how he breaks the story. That's how he gets the truth out. And the story gets picked up in a couple of newspapers. And then Walter Duranty goes to the New York Times and says, hey, there is no famine here. He writes that in the New York Times, there is no famine. And that settled the matter. Right, because if Walter Duranty saying there's no famine and he's the famous guy, he's our man in Moscow. Who do you believe, him or some young kid? And right. so, um, so Walter Duranty was incredibly effective in muddling the truth, and um, the fa- and and it was guys like Walter Duranty that ensured that Stalin's genocide famine over many decades isn't known about. Like people today don't really know about it, and part of their weaponry against the truth was that. The Soviet Union for many decades, and Anne Applebaum writes about this in her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Gulag, um, for many decades, the Soviet Union would control academics. So if you were an academic from the West that wanted to access the Soviet Union to develop your programs, your educational programs at your university and your own research and understanding, if you were a friendly academic, sympathetic to the Soviets, yes, they would give you access. If you weren't, good luck getting a visa. And that's a story I heard directly from an ac- academic of that generation who was trying for years to get into the Soviet Union and couldn't because he wasn't considered orthodox enough. He wasn't considered a useful idiot to them. So as a result, academia, the, our whole understanding in the West of, of the Soviet Union, in, including ca- captive nations like Ukraine, uh, was developed through a Moscow lens. And therefore, there wasn't any space or understanding uh, for Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. It wasn't until the archives were finally opened after the collapse of, of communism that finally you had researchers coming in like Applebaum and Tim Snyder who were going to the archives and getting Ukraine's story out and decolonizing Ukraine's history. So it's all very recent that this is coming out in a very big way. Granted, there was a book by Robert Conquest, who's a great historian, but that book, Harvest of Sorrow, that was a book that was, from what I understand, was commissioned by Ukrainians saying, please write our history. It wasn't something you or- organically came across, from what I understand. There, so Ukrainians had to fight for so long to get their own story out. And that, and, and I think Putin just relied on that level of uh, that whole system of, of censorship that, that they've, the Kremlin has engineered for so long. And I think he thought he would get away with it again this time. I think he's shocked right now. I think he believed his own propaganda. I think the the failures of the Russian military that we're witnessing, that the world is learning, it's not as tough as it as Putin told us it was. I think that's all because Putin 
is a victim of his own corruption, his own kleptocracy, and his own disinformation. Hey there, overwhelmed foodies. Are you drowning in a sea of meal kit options, feeling like you're in a bad dating game where every contestant looks the same, with the same fish picture? Fear not, because amidst the chaos, there's one shining star worth your culinary affection. Home Chef is not just another fish in the meal kit sea. They're the gourmet catch that you've been dreaming of. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef design recipes, conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you and the entire family covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week, and they serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it is economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. So for a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free shipping on your first box and free dessert for life at homechef.com slash feverdream. That's homechef.com slash feverdream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. Homechef.com slash feverdream. You must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. So can you explain how Russian, I guess, Kremlin interests are embedded within Western institutions other than, let's say, like the press in a in a gatekeeping sort of way? Like how are how does it work with other industries? Why is it so hard for um, why was it so hard for America to stand up to Putin earlier? That's a good question. I mean, the, the Dallas Morning News wrote a piece about how um, Russian money, Russian oligarch money uh, was was that dark money was circulating among Republican campaigns. Um, and it, it's it's donations. It's dark money donations to pol uh, political groups. Um, it's reputation laundering. If you look at Abramovich, Abramovich deliberately bought – so Abramovich is somebody that um, the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny calls Putin's wallet. There was a deal with um, Yeltsin and Putin made the same deal where the oligarchs – where the oligarchs like Abramovich could feed like pigs at the trough out of uh, money stolen from the Russian state, right? Like privatizing <laughs> all sorts of uh, resources and industry in Russia – and they would get a cut of that. Putin would get a cut of that. And in exchange, the oligarchs had to do Putin's bidding wherever they were abroad. And he kept them on a tight leash. He kept a close eye on them. And the, these Russian oligarchs would go spending their money in London grad, trying to launder their reputations by making donations to museums and other cultural institutions, and really building themselves up to be these posh, super powerful because they're super rich members of elite British society, for example. And as part of that effort, uh, Abramovich, according to one journalist um, who called this back in 2013, Abramovich uh, deliberately bought Chelsea, the football club, the premier football club, um, not because of any passion necessarily for Chelsea, but mm. because he wanted to launder his reputation and soften his image and by extension soften Russia's image. This is an oligarch who is considered like a son to Putin, right? Mm -hmm. He's got a very close relationship. And what, now that he's become the face of the UK's beloved Chelsea club, he's untouchable. Like he's, he's, he's one of us. Oh, he's right. such a good guy. Look at him, you know, look at him holding the trophy after the big win. He's one of us. 
And this was cover. This was prote- this was protection. This was his way of saying, you can't touch me because I'm already here. I'm one of you now. Right. That makes I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And it it for that, having been their strategy to sort of embed, you know, their government into into the West and, you know, therefore advance their interests. But earlier you said that, um, you know, Putin's a guy who will go all the way. He'll stop at nothing. So what is your what do you have any foresight or just predictions or insight into what you know might be coming next? How long do you think this might last? Are there any circumstances under which Putin would concede? Do you think that you know a nuclear threat is is actually likely to happen? Um, yeah, just what's your general take? Yeah, no, on the nuclear threat front, look at what shit. Russia's military is. Yeah. Imagine what, you know, it's like everyone was so scared. All, all He's been building up his military surrounding Ukraine for a year now. And everyone was like, oh, my God, Ukraine's about to get slaughtered. Kiev's going to get taken in two days. There mm-hmm. are even memes inside of Russia where they are boasting about how, you know, at noon, the Russians come in and have lunch. Then by the afternoon, they take Kiev. Then that evening yeah. they take in a show. Like they were, like, you know, and then and then now we're seeing what ha- what's happening. There's there's mass deserters. Um, the the kill count for the Russian side is insane. It's like right. they're losing so many soldiers killed in action and wounded. It's like um, they're even even conservative estimates are astounding. So if you go by uh, Ukraine's estimates, they're nearing. Um, the total number of of Soviet soldiers lost in Afghanistan in two weeks. In two wow. weeks, yes, it's it's crazy. So the Russian military shit. They're they're sitting ducks to Ukraine right now, and the only reason why uh, the war has turned this has made this tr- horrific turn is because the Russian military, their main strategy, is war crimes. They deliberately target hospitals. They deliberately target schools. I interviewed a Syrian activist for Gaslit Nation who said that in Syria, they had to hide their hospitals underground. They had to hide their schools underground. They had to keep these essential social structures hidden because otherwise Russia would bomb them. And Russia would also do this thing where they would, where the Russian plane would deliberately bomb civilians and then the the aid workers would rush out to rescue the civilians and then the Russian plane would circle back and bomb the aid workers. This is what they did in Syria. And so the big ace in the hole for Russia are war crimes. It's war crimes. And we're not going to see a nuclear bomb from Russia because of the simple reason that Putin, his money is entangled and hidden so well so dark and deep in Western purchases, in Western investments. His mistress is apparently holed up in Monaco, right? He's not going to bomb himself. And these Russian oligarchs have apartments in New York City. He's not going to bomb New York City. The, the thing is, these guys have moved their piggy banks all around the world. They're not going to nuke their fortune. It's ridiculous. He has a long history of making nuclear threats. He was running nuclear exercises in the lead up to the 2016 election. And 
Right. Jill Stein and Donald Trump were screaming about this on Twitter, saying, oh, look, if you vote for Hillary, there's going to be nuclear war with Russia. So this is one of his aces in the hold, making these these empty, 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 empty nuclear threats. And it works because people are now spooked. And now people are like, oh, we, we, we can't. You know, the U.S. goes from saying, yes, we want NATO partners to send planes to Ukraine to suddenly like, nope, we don't want those planes to go because the nuclear intimidation works every time, even though it is an empty bluff. What is real is going to be the war crimes. Those are going to ramp up and those are going to get worse. And you're going to have more and more mass graves as we're already seeing, just like there were during Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine, a traumatic history that still lives on among Ukrainians. So I want people to understand that they're, that Ukrainians today are being re-traumatized. They've already have these stories, these horrific stories in their families of surviving the genocide famine, of surviving the horrors of World War II, of surviving the Holocaust. And now they're, they have this again. So it's, it's, it's just a crime against humanity, what Putin is, is being allowed to carry out. And where is it going to go? Well, the sanctions aren't work, aren't, they simply can't work fast enough, right? It's just, it's going to take time. And meanwhile, Putin is going to prop up his people through disinformation and compare this to Stalin's great victory of World War II. Never mind that Stalin and Hitler caused World War II by carving up Europe to get Poland together. And you can't even mention that now in Russia. I believe it's illegal. They will you can't put that on social media, right. like he, you know. So, um, so he's going to he's going to keep the Russian people at bay, and he's going to keep the war going through disinformation. You see more and more of these Hitler Youth style videos coming out of Russia with these young Russian activists wearing black and a Z symbol and trying to look very intimidating and ferocious. It's straight up fascism now, and. Um, the, the great historian Tim Snyder, who wrote Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, how those two mass murderers influenced each other. Tim Snyder was also a uh, the historical advisor, one of the many on my film, Mr. Jones. Tim Snyder wrote a great piece years ago about how Putin is influenced by this Russian thinker who came up with the very concept of fascism, right? So, so, so everyone's like, oh, Putin's lost his mind. He's gone over the edge. This is always who he is. He's finally just carrying out a long-held dream, and he wants to leave behind a legacy before he dies. And that legacy is to bring back a, a fascist Russian empire. That's it. He wants that Russian imperial greatness, and he's going to do it at the cost of countless innocent lives carrying out a genocide before the world. So I don't know how this will go. I don't know if this will drag out for years because of Syria. I think the, the pressure of the sanctions, the pressure of the international boycott has to continue. Uh, whatever air defense that anyone anywhere can get to Ukraine so they can keep the skies. Keep, right now, the skies over Ukraine are contested. Russia has some of it under their control, but they're meeting fierce resistance. So the more you can get them these drones that are knocking out columns of, of Russian tanks, the more you can get them whatever they need to protect the skies. I know there's a lot of talk of a no-fly zone, but unfortunately, like we saw in Libya, like we even saw in Syria, it might get to that because the, 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 I mean, the, the loss of life is going to be so great that we, we might be forced into it eventually. And that's the problem. And so the Ukrainians are saying, you know you're going to go there eventually because he's this guy depends on war crimes to win. 
And so you might as well do it now to save hundreds of thousands of lives. Keep in mind, something like 400 to 600,000 people were, were slaughtered in Syria. Around 5 million plus were displaced by that war. And so that's what Putin is going to do. Imagine millions of more people than what we're already seeing flooding into Europe. Where are they going to go? The UK under Boris Johnson doesn't want to let them in. In the US, I think there's something like a, a cap of 10,000 refugees per country. Where are they going to go? And so the whole message of, of what needs to happen now is listen to the Ukrainians. Don't treat them like they're hysterical. They're the ones that are showing the world how to stand up to Putin. They're the ones who don't fear Putin because they see him as they see him as like this annoying neighbor, right? <laughs> they see right. they they don't they don't put this Bond villain mystique, this KGB yes. mystique that the rest of the world they, they don't they don't treat him. They, the rest of the world falls for treating Putin as as though he's exotic. Ukrainians are like, you're annoying. <laughs> like, you know, right. let us live in peace. And so that's why that's why they don't fear him. They see him for who he is. They see his bluffs. They've had years of countering Kremlin aggression and standing up to it. And that's why they're able to do it again. And the whole world is shocked. And they're like, oh, that's how it's done. So it's important for people to call Putin's bluff, to call Russia's bluff, to realize that Russia is not as strong as it claims to be, and to keep up the pressure of sanctions, keep up with their sanctions, and to um, demand that more and more companies leave Russia, that the international boycott keeps going, and that it doesn't stop, and that the world does not look away. Because what is happening in, in Ukraine will spread Again, because Putin has his eye on empire. He wants Moldova. He wants Georgia. These are two countries that are now scrambling suddenly to try to get into the European Union. He will he will punish Poland. He will punish the Baltics for the support they're giving. Like he's going to keep going because he that's his pattern. That's who he is. And um, it's also important to know what we're losing with Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has been a hotbed for the Russian resistance. Ukraine has been a refuge for human rights activists and journalists from across that entire region. Ukraine has given birth to a really exciting and vibrant LGBTQ movement, a gay rights movement in the region. Ukraine has been a democratizing force for a greater equality for women in the region. Ukraine has been a leader in tech and IT. It's like, like I think it's like ranks fifth for IT. You know, the woman that was just slaughtered uh, by the Russians while she was trying to escape a suburb of Kiev she worked for Silicon Valley. She was a Silicon Valley executive or accountant. And she and her two children were killed try trying to leave this humanitarian corridor. And, and so Ukraine has several cities that compete with each other to be the Silicon Valley of Ukraine. And they're creating all types of innovations that we use and take for granted in several apps and websites, right? So Ukraine is a innovative country. It's an interesting country. It's a country that fights ferociously for human rights and democracy. Um, a lot, the, the, the civil society of Ukraine is, is tenacious. They are the ones that have been exposing the stolen oligarch wealth for years. They've been informing journalists around the world and, and providing important uh, research documentation for, for newsrooms around the world. And, and so Ukraine is an extremely important front line in the global war on corruption. So that's what we're losing. We're losing all of those resources if Ukraine should fall under a the totalitarianism of Russia. And that's not to say that Ukraine lives matter more than any other country's lives. I'm just I'm just saying like 
understand that anytime there's there are atrocities anywhere, like in Syria, right? It, it's going to keep getting worse if we don't finally put a stop to it and have a united front. So it's in everyone's interest to stop dictators wherever they are, pull the plug on gas station dictatorships like Russia and Saudi Arabia. Don't coddle these guys. Don't let them in. Don't let them come to Davos. Don't legitimize them. Treat them like the mass murdering dictatorships that they are. Hurry up with weaning the world off of their oil, right? Because that's going to take away their leverage over us. And so it's important that we see Ukraine as this global fight against autocracy generally. It's important that we protect Ukraine and win Ukraine so China so China understands the humiliation and, and the threat of trying to of trying to be imperialistic and violent, right? So it's so important that you, that we win in Ukraine as a as an overall um, front line in the greater war against autocracy today. Yeah, I, I you just really answered all my questions that I was going to ask with that. Um, but I I do think one of the most um, interesting contrasts to come out of this has been the resilience of the Ukrainian people alongside, you know, I think. A, a lot of talk from Putin about who he was and what he had sort of, you know, in his pocket um, to take over. But yeah, I, I guess my I guess my final question will be, what can the average American do about the situation? Um, what are ways that, you know, just regular people can can start to fight autocracy? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, so to help Ukraine, so I, I have friends that started an organization years ago during the revolution in Ukraine, and it's called Rosm, Rosm for Ukraine. Stephen Colbert amplified Rosm and said, donate to help Ukraine, donate to Rosm. And people can donate there to, for humanitarian aid and to help Ukrainian refugees. And you can find them at on the website, Rosm for Ukraine. Rosm is spelled R A Z O M. R-A-Z-O-M, and that's rosm4ukraine.org. I trust those guys. I've known them for years. They're incredibly flexible, reactive, passionate, and they're doing the Lord's work in in and in, in getting what is needed on the ground in Ukraine right now. And um, so and in, and amplify Ukrainian voices. The Kiev Independent is a wonderful independent journalism outlet with several journalists across Ukraine who are reporting on the war, providing credible information, fighting disinformation, fact-checking idiots in um, Western publications around the world who are too lazy to get their facts right. They're doing incredible work on providing facts, which we need more than ever right now in a, in a crisis like this, given the Kremlin's disinformation. So amplify the voices of the Kiev Independent. That's very important. The Kiev Independent. You can find them on Twitter. Um, so yeah, amplify Ukrainian voices. And just don't have... Wh what I always take from Ukrainians, from all my years of researching the country and visiting the country and having lived in the country, is stay in the light fight for the light believe in something greater than yourself believe in a, a greater ideal which is which is freedom and democracy and because you know people are looking at this and saying why is zelensky so principled why doesn't zelensky just surrender and save all these lives because the alternative is prison the alternative is death and and genocide he has no choice but to fight and he and they plan to fight and win because you see all these people running towards danger. You see all these people, the diaspora Ukrainians, tens of thousands of them leaving their Western countries to go sign up and fight for their country. 
And that is what we saw in Ukraine's revolution on Maidan in Kiev in 2014. The more violent images came out of protesters being beaten, of, of reports of protesters being kidnapped and tortured and left in the woods. The more those violent images, videos and, and photos were on Facebook and Twitter, the more Ukrainians rushed towards danger. They ran to Maidan. They didn't back down. They ran towards the danger. They're like, you're not going to do that to my country. You're not going to do that to, to my friends, families, and neighbors. They ran towards danger. And they did that because they had a conviction in something greater. And I remember watching all this play out. I remember that there are these European officials, American officials, that try to broker a peace deal between the Ukrainian protesters and Yanukovych, Putin's puppet, Putin's very Trumpian puppet. And the deal was that Yanukovych could stay in power in exchange for early elections, one kid from the sea of protesters when this deal was announced climbs up on stage, grabs the microphone and says, the president has until tomorrow morning to leave or we're going to make him leave. And what happened? Yanukovych rushed out that night, flew to Russia and never came back. And Ukrainians peacefully toured his palace the next day, built with stolen money from the Ukrainian people. Yanukovych stole an estimated something like 30 billion, higher estimates put it at 100 billion he stole that from the Ukrainian people. Paul and Manafort's client? Yes, exactly. Yes. The guy that yeah. Paul Manafort was advising throughout all of this. Paul Manafort, who has a book deal from Simon and Schuster, which, you know, Simon and Schuster should finally grow a spine and join the international boycott against Kremlin aggression and drop Paul Manafort's book deal. So my point is, is that, you know, what I'm taking from Ukrainians right now, and I always have, including in this moment of crises, and I and it's a, it's a way for all of us to find our breath and to find some some healing space in all this is do not fear, like stay in the light, keep your eye on the light, look up to the sky, like, like keep, keep hope alive. Because what dictators ultimately want to do and what Putin is so good at doing, and he did this against the Russian people for so long, they're so good at trying to kill hope. So, so Ukrainians always keep their eyes to the sky. They always keep their, their hearts and minds on fighting for their own freedom, for their children's freedom, for a higher ideal of democracy. They're giving their lives right now to join the European Union, to have rights that we all take for granted. And so just, just keep that hope alive that there is something greater worth fighting for. There is something greater worth standing for. And, and don't back down from that. And, and, and things large and small, keep hope alive. That is how you win. I think that is the most inspiring message that we could possibly be ending on. Uh, thank you so much, Andrea. Um, I have been, I just have to say, I mean, you and you and Sarah have been calling, you know, things years in advance. You were talking about Ukraine, you know, I remember in like 2018 and, you know, just it, it seemed like such a, you know, such sort of a remote topic, but, you know, ultimately ended up being so incredibly important. And, you know, the two of you have been ahead, you know, out, out ahead in front of everything. So I would highly recommend everyone listens to Gaslit Nation and check out Mr. Jones, Andrea's film. And thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. And anytime. Of course. Until the end of democracy, I'm Sammy Sage, and this has been the Betches Sub Podcast. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and send us your emails to suppod at Betches.com. Betches.